Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, so we're going to dig into Deuteronomy 17 tonight. You can click or flip to get there. Contextual-wise, we're in the third part of Deuteronomy. Uh, chapters 12 through 26 are really the specific laws of how to run the government, how to run the temple, and how to run the civic and kind of personal life and how you do things. So really particular laws, really specific. This is the section of Deuteronomy that terrifies the first-time Bible readers because it kind of goes on and on and on. And I'm amazed at what a blessing it can be when you meditate on it, when you think about it, when you dig in. Um, but it does go on a little bit. So we are now in the middle of this kind of piece. We first had the establishment of God's authority. Then they had the establishment of judges in the country. Then they had a rule for kings. Remember in chapter 17 and what kings had to do. And now in chapter 17, we get the prophets. So we have the three branches of government firmly established for the first time in world history. So I feel like there should be like a little like ding, ding, ding. It's a world history moment. This is the first time we ever see three branches of government established. But I know we're not in a civics class, but for me that gets really exciting. Verse 1, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that's an abomination to the Lord your God. Um, so uh, essentially give your best to God. Don't give him the junk. Don't give him the things that don't cost anything. This is like when David went to the um, to the threshing floor and they offer, and the person there kind of said, I'll give you whatever you want because you're David and you can have what you want. And he said, I don't want to offer any burnt offerings to my Lord that don't cost me anything. So gifts to God should be something that costs you something. Second Samuel 24, any money that we give to God with the wrong heart is another way to look at something like this. If we're giving God like faulty sheep and faulty blemished animals, because we don't have the right heart about it. We're not giving God our best to start with. Um, and the reason why I even stop on that is because if we're giving things to God with the wrong heart, in this particular verse, one, it says that's an abomination to do that. So it's better to not give anything to God if you don't have that heart of generosity about it. Because I'd rather be neutral with God than to do something that's an abomination to God. So don't give things that are faulty or leftovers when you do your giving. Verse 2. If there is found among you any within your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, either sun or moon or, or any host of heaven, which I've not commanded, and it's told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. <clears throat> if it's indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out your to your gates that man or woman who's committed that wicked thing, and you shall stone them to death, that man or woman with stones. So in chapter 17, we had the rules for the judges that were like Exodus 21 through 23. It sets a process and a precedent for how to do things. 
So a lot of times the focus on this is what do you mean they stoned people to death and they had execution and that's how they handled this sort of thing. But God expects a process to happen before that happens. And that's what I want to point out in these verses. The first thing they're supposed to do in verse four is that they're supposed to inquire diligently. In other words, they're supposed to be what we would today call an investigation. So when somebody comes in and says, so-and-so did something bad, our flesh wants to just believe it and then gossip about it. And that's how gossip starts to really hurt people. So when that sort of thing happens, note the process here is an, a diligent inquiry in verse four. The purpose of that is to find out if it's indeed true and certain. And the word certain there is emeth in the Hebrew. It means a firmness or a sure stability. So before judgment gets passed on this people, there's an absolute certainty that they're conducting pagan worship in Israel. And there's no doubt about it. It's, um, it's kun or proper. Uh, so the true and certain is emeth and kun. It's both firm and sure, which is true in, our tra- in my translation. And then it's certain, which is proper or that it stands upright. So it's something that's so true and understood. You have so many facts that the facts speak for themselves and they stand on their own. And we still have that kind of burden of proof when we're going to convict someone. It should be beyond a shadow of a doubt. And that comes directly from these passages in the Bible. There should be absolutely no doubt that this person's guilty. Because it's better to leave someone alive that's innocent of something than to falsely accuse them and kill somebody in that way. So even if someone's guilty, if you can't prove it beyond a shadow of doubt, we're going to let them live because God can handle things too. And you just have faith that even if you think they're guilty, if you can't prove, prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt, you don't convict people. So justice rules in the land. We judge by facts and evidence that are sure and that they stand up. Um, and that's a command because we see the phrase, you shall. Um, likewise, if it is firm and certain, then you shall bring a civic punishment to them for what they've done. Burden of proof, another world history moment. We get the concept of burden of proof, which we enjoy in America, but that came from somewhere and it came from the Bible. Verse six, whoever's deserving death, so this isn't just people doing pagan worship. This is anyone that's guilty of a death sentence kind of penalty. Whoever's deserving death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil things from among you. So there is a consequence for people that are guilty of things. The death penalty is being practiced there, but no one gets executed without evidence. And evidence here being the ascribing of guilt. And there's two elements. One, there had to be two witnesses, two or three. It doesn't say that a mob accuses people of guilt. So Jesus being accused of his guilt, he was accused by a, a mob of people, but he never had two or three witnesses that could agree on something about what he did. So there was no legal accusation against Jesus that was legit by this law. So the whole mob can say you're guilty of something, but unless two or three witnesses can say or repeat a story beyond a shadow of a doubt that something happened, you're really not guilty, nor shall you be guilty. Thus, Jesus was an innocent man that was convicted on a cross, according to the laws of God. So the guilty has a right to know who their accuser is because they're the first ones to throw the stones. That's a pretty big deal. And we have today a society where sometimes you can accuse somebody of something and never face your accuser. 
and say, you did this. And we have kind of a society that's, as we're getting further and further away from the word of God, we're getting more and more lenient about this idea that a guilty person has the right to face their accuser. And that comes out of these verses. So witnesses here is the word ed or aid is how it's pronounced. Um, the word witness it actually comes from the root of concrete. So a witness should be able to give concrete testimony of what has happened. So this is tough because over time, witnesses change their stories because we remember things differently as time passes. So to get two or three people to give a concrete testimony against someone that's done something, they probably had to be there to be able to see the same things. It's extremely hard to get two people to agree on anything. So when the accusations start flying, 1 Timothy 5 actually keeps to this law in the church too. No one gets accused of things unless there's two or three people that will step forward and make their name known as the accuser. If that's the case, you really do want to get people. So if you say have someone have practicing sorcery in your church, you do kind of want to get that person out of the community by today's standards. That's not somebody you really want to have running around convincing people to join them in your church but you need to have people that will step forward and do it. To put someone away is the word ba'ar. It means to consume that, there, or that there's nothing left of that person. In Israel, that basically meant that they stoned them or killed them, but then they would also burn them. So there would be nothing left of them. So to put them away actually meant that they weren't buried with their fathers and, and mothers in the graveyard. They weren't ready to be raised at the end of days they would actually burn or incinerate them to get rid of them. Um, this is relevant because they broke this rule. If Jesus was guilty, they should have destroyed him completely. But by taking his body and putting it in a tomb, that really stands out for a Jewish reader in the New Testament. Because if he was guilty of what they're accusing him of, he should have been destroyed, and he wasn't. So you've heard it said of those of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger in judgment. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And then Jesus says, whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell. So Jesus defines murder as something that's in the heart or something we believe about other people. But without two or three witnesses, there's no foundation by which that accus accusation can be made. So even though the sin is done in our heart, we may not have civic consequences for those sins. And that's kind of what Jesus was saying, is that you're not just innocent if you are not in a jail cell. You're innocent based on where your heart is at with some of these things. And he's applying those kinds of pieces. The burden of proof then becomes something that's holy and good and just. And if people care about good government, then burden of proof kind of matters because it's God's way of doing it. So if someone's going to be accused of anything, and we, we get this all the time, people get accused in our media of various things and we don't really know where that fact came from and they're tried in the public eye before they're ever tried in a court of law and it's something that's really kind of shifting in our culture right now that makes that kind of thing happen if no one's actually seen it then there's nobody to throw the first stone so it makes gossip it takes the teeth out of gossip a little bit so if nobody's willing to step forward and throw the stone nobody's actually seen the crime then there's no guilt to be had. You're innocent and you should walk away as Jesus says to the lady who's accused of, of sin. Remember he draws in the dirt and then he says, whoever among you 
uh, is without sin, throw the first stone. And Jesus twists that a little bit. He doesn't say whoever among you saw that the sin happen should throw the first stone. He says it without sin. Because if you're watching a harlot have sex, you're probably in sin yourself. And if no one wants to admit to seeing that happen, then she doesn't get stoned. And everybody just kind of walks away because nobody wants to be the first to throw the first stone. Jesus is applying this law to make an amazing point in the New Testament, one of mercy. So again, if you do like David and you meditate on his law day and night, and you start to think about how this stuff works, this is really kind of a law of mercy. But for a critic, they're going to read these passages and say, oh, this is just cruelty and meanness, and you're just stoning people all the time. The reality is, historically, very few people ever got stoned because that was the consequence, so people avoided the sin in the first place. So it, it was something that helped to prevent these things from happening. I'm sorry, John 8 is where that story is, if you want to go look that up later. All the people then join in, so the execution, when happens, the whole point is that the whole community knows about it, and they're all on board with it. This person needs to go. And that happens in the church today, too. When we read the New Testament, church law basically says you should seek out a matter, seek it out diligently, and if there's two or three witnesses about something, then sometimes you need to ask people to leave your church community because they're, disrupt they're disruptive and whatnot. And that is the spiritual equivalent of stoning them. Um, and we don't stone people in the modern age because the New Testament has kind of this spiritual standard for that. But when you've sent somebody out of your church, a church full of broken people that are sinners, it means there's something going on that's disrupting the growth process for everybody else involved. And the whole group kind of agrees on that. First, it's a one-on-one, -on -one, then you bring in an elder, and then you bring it to the whole body and say, hey, we had to ask somebody to leave and here's why. And you let everybody know what happened so that gossip doesn't take over your church. That said, we'll keep going. Um, verse 8. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between the degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place where the Lord your God chooses. This is place theology in verse 8. The place is going to later be Jerusalem and the temple. In the New Testament, that place is going to be the church. And verse 9, And you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them that they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. So this establishes a higher court system that we should be familiar with because we have it in America too. You've got your county courts, you've got your state courts, you've got your federal level courts, and that court means when a case is too tricky or difficult and it can always go up to the next level. And hopefully you have wise people at the Supreme Court level, but essentially they establish a tiered court system in Israel. I think that's kind of cool, but that's the history geek in me. I love to see like the roots of where things got started. Because the Assyrians did not invent a, a tiered court system. The Israelites did. And they don't get credit for it all the time because this is amazing stuff. These judges or that tiered court system is going to be the leadership structure. And they even get whole books named after that called judges. Israel doesn't get a king right off the bat. They get these judges that are going to rule and decide these situations until they ask for a king. Verse 10. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. You shall be careful to do according to all that they order you, according to the sentence of the law which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or the left from the sentence they pronounce upon you. So incidentally, this moves all responsibility off the local judges. When they pass off a case to a higher court, 
the local judge doesn't have to deal with it. This is really brilliant because if I'm in a local city where everybody's grown up together and we all know each other and I got to make a decision between my sister and my Aunt Bertha, I don't want to make that decision. So I just say, this is too tough of a thing for me to decide or I want to uh, remove myself from this court case and I can hand it up to a higher court. That means I can still be at peace with all the people involved and the factions involved in a court case. So it's kind of a brilliant solution, but verses 10 and 11 establish the authority of those higher courts, um, that their, their, their judgment is kind of final, like arbitration. Verse 12, now the man who asks, asks presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or judge, that man shall die because they're wrecking the whole system. If they don't honor that authority structure, they're in defiance and rebellion against the authority structure. They're going to wreck it because that judgment has to be final. Assuming that it's fair and just, then it should be abided by. So you shall put away the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and they shall fear. And then look at that and no longer act presumptuously. So to defy the courts is to presume that you know better than the judges do. To defy the decision-making process of a body of people that don't want to hurt you. They want what's best for the community. And if you're going to disagree with that judgment, <clears throat> your presumption is your sin. And we've seen that come up with Moses a lot through the last three books. That one of the primary sins of humanity is to presume that we're more important than we are. And in the court system, that's even worse. So presumption then is an act of defiance. It's in this passage, the word zud. And frankly, I love when Hebrew has fun words like that. Zud is to boil up and to boil over. So when you have your pan of water on the stove and it's boiling and simmering, all humans are busy and they boil and they simmer and they turn. But sometimes when it goes too much, it actually boils up and goes over and lands on the stove and makes a mess of everything. And that's presumption. So as we all do our own thing and have our own agendas and move around and have unity of spirit in the church, when you get any one person who starts to think they're more important than everybody else, that can be presumption. And it, it messes everything up and it creates a disaster all over the place. So zood, arrogance, pride to boil up or to boil over, puffing yourself up above others' people or to deal proudly with people. And if you're saying the courts aren't right about their decision, that's pretty presumptuous. So <clears throat> you do something in addition to what God asks is to presume. Um, Jesus then, here's the situation. Jesus went through that court system and actually got handed over to the Roman courts, which they should never have done. But when he got handed over to the Roman courts and he's accused of something as an innocent person, instead of defying the court system, he gave himself over to it. So even in this, Jesus continued to follow the law because he was not supposed to defy the decision of the court system that he had been handed to. So by going as a lamb to the slaughter, he let them do whatever Romans were going to do to him. And what Romans did is far more cruel than getting knocked with a stone and, and knocked out, right? So he was given over to this horrendous situation, but he still didn't rebel against it. It applies, this idea of presumption applies to um, local leaders that would then do more because notice it says you shan't, shouldn't add to it or take away. So you might have local leaders that want to give punishment, but then they want it to be a super cruel punishment. And that's not okay either. So some like weird, abusive, cruel punishments are not part of God's law. Um, they should be uh, 
killed and killed quickly and it shouldn't be a big display. Next we go to the principles for governing kings. Israel doesn't get a king right off the bat, but when they do ask for a king and God knows that they will, the law is complete and it has everything they need. Verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is your, not your brother. So God's going to pick your king. Verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Multiply horses, I hope we all kind of pick up on that. That's like a phrase for like multiplying your army. Because in this particular period of history, your army was only as strong as your horses. Calvary pretty much won all battles in the ancient world until which military leader beat Calvary for the first time with infantry? Alexander the Great. He's the, that was what made him so great is he was the first person to lead infantry troops to beat Calvary on an open battlefield. So prior to Alexander the Great, when you multiply your horses, you're multiplying your military power and your ability to exert force on the nations around you. Um, thanks, Grant. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest he, his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. So wait a second. We're seeing the rules for kings. All the rules for kings are things that hold the king back from what kings want to do when they become kings or queen. So if I can't build a military and I can't add wives for myself and I can't add money for myself, What's the point of being a king in the ancient world? Those are the good things that you'd want. Pride, lust, and greed. And those are the three things that are going to also be the fall of almost every public figure that the history of the world has ever seen. That's the sin that gets people when they're in leadership. Pride, lust, or greed. Pick a combo, pick one, whatever it's going to be, you can pretty much size it up and that's what's going to happen to folks. So all of this is about the moderation. None of these are bad in itself. God does allow for a military. He allows for a king to have a wife or a queen to have a husband. He allows resources, like Solomon gets resources, but the heart shouldn't turn away from God to go after pride, lust, or greed. The heart should always be on there. The word multiply in the Hebrew is rava. It doesn't mean like a mathematical formula. So Bridget, if you're listening, I'm sorry. It's not math. It actually means basically to become great or grow numerous. Um, it means the presence of growth. So it's okay to have a wife, but you don't want to multiply or add to your wives. It's not like an exact thing. It's okay to have money, but your goal as a king should not be to actively try to grow your wealth. So if I'm not trying to grow my wealth and I'm not trying to grow my wife base and I'm not trying to grow my military power, the thing the king should be doing is growing towards God. They should be constantly doing that, that pursuit of the Lord and how they should live. So we likewise, we need a house. We have to have a place to live. It's good, I think, to have marital closeness with your spouse, if you have a spouse. It should be good to save up a little bit as a family. It's okay to have resources and money. But our pursuit in life, likewise, shouldn't be to try to expand those things constantly with all of our time and attention. That shouldn't be what governs our life in the same way that it shouldn't govern the king. So in the church, sadly, 
we have Christian leaders, even in this generation, that continually fall for pride, lust, and greed. It's frankly embarrassing because I went and looked up Christian leaders that have fallen. <laughs> and it's a Google search. And then I had this list of names and stuff was like, do you really want to list the names? And I'm like, I don't know. I got a group here for sex. I got a group here for pride. And I got a group here even for militarism. Because even in the church, you get people like Fred Phelps and John Brown, where part of what made them fall was that they convinced their congregation to go out and fight. And it was not good. It was a militaristic kind of church. And so you have these environments and these Christian leaders, and you can name them. I'm not going to go through them all. I don't want to get sued or anything like that. And John Brown's already dead, so he can't sue me. Um, you, you have Christian leaders that fall for these things because it's the temptation all of the time when other people are listening to you. So instead of pursuing the word of God, they're pursuing the stuff of the world and it just causes them to fall. And I would venture to say in our personal lives, it's the same battle. Um, uh, Steve Farrar wrote a great book called Finishing Strong about 20 years ago. Outstanding book. The whole book is structured around how Christians fall because of pride, lust, and greed. And those three things take you away from your walk with God. And I like that this passage just kind of nails it, verses 16 and 17. The cares of this world, Mark 4:19, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So according to Mark, th those are also the things that choke your love for the word of God. And I keep saying this like I'm a broken record. But if you have other reasons to be in any kind of place other than how can I get closer to the word of God and the Jesus who wrote it, then you're kind of probably pursuing after other things. So a lot of times we work so that we have time to study the word and we work so that we can do the works of God that he's put in front of us. I'm still praying that somebody's going to come back and say, yeah, I saw a person on a street corner, so I decided to go good Samaritan them on him and here's what happened and here's what we did. Because those are the kinds of things that I think add life and fruit to our life. But these things don't add fruit. More horses, more wives, uh, more gold pieces in your trunk don't add fruit to your life. They promise to, but they don't. Verse 18, also for kings, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. Luckily, when he says this law, it's talking about Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They only had to write the five books, right? We, if we were going to be a king and we were going to sit on a throne, we would have to write the whole Bible out as defined and agreed upon as the word of God. But that was the rule. Before anybody could be a king of Israel, they had to handwrite the Bible before they were worthy of being king. So where should their focus be? It should be on the word of God. As a leader of God's people, you should know the word. Undoubtedly. I love that verse because people say sometimes there's an accusation that there's people in the church today that are making the Bible into an idol. No, we don't worship the Bible, but it is the pathway into hearing what God has to say. So we, nor do we diminish the Bible at all. And clearly verse 18 is not a diminishing of the word of God. It's actually an elevation of it considerably. God wants people to rule that know his word. So every king of Israel was first a scribe in Israel. They were all students of the Torah. Verse 19, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. So make a copy and then keep it on you in your holster, ready to go at any given time. So as a king, when you're making judgments, you can just pull the word of God out and say, this is what it says. Because no king 
is more important than the people that they're judging or the people they're ministering to or the people that they're leading. They just go by the word of God and that's their, their mandate. That they may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. So rules for a king. Grow through the word of God word for word, then keep the word of God, then read it some more, then learn, fear, and be careful. All of this is a causal relationship that he may do these things in verse 19. It's causal. If you're not in the word of God, you can't really do or fear God in any kind of powerful way. So this is the beautiful thing. If you can get people out of churches and not reading the word of God on a consistent basis, you really don't have powerful Christians walking around the planet. That's the goal for the enemy. But if people are in the word, they become people that can actually do the word. It's causal. And I thought that was kind of cool in verse 19. So it does not say, what does this verse not say? It doesn't say that we need to understand everything. It, it just says we need to read it. It doesn't say we have to be masters of theology. It just says we need to keep it and take care for ourselves. Nor does it say we, we need to be out with picket signs, militaristically telling other people what to do. It basically says we should be taking care for ourselves and taking care of that word. The book then keeps us from sin, and sin will keep us from the book. And that's kind of how it works. Be careful to observe... If one's going to lead, they should take their cues from God, not from pride, lust, or greed. Though horses are good and there's nothing wrong with horses, you don't live for the horses. Alyssa agrees, so we're good to go on that one. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or the left, that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, and he and his children in the midst of Israel. Your, your leadership and the responsibilities God has given you may actually last longer if you do it the right way. So your heart can, doesn't get lifted up above other people. Same idea as presumption. You don't puff yourself up. Hard to do if you're the king of an empire. It's hard to not puff yourself up when you're in that situation. Humility is extremely difficult. Don't garnish yourself. Don't pretend that you're better than the other people you're around. All are equal then in God's sight. We've seen that already. For God, there's one blood, one class, one humanity. There's people that serve him and there's people that don't. And all of them are accountable to him. Don't turn aside from the right or the left. Apparently there are pitfalls on either side of God's word. You can be too legalistic with it over here. You can ignore it over here. And they're both pitfalls. So keeping God's word and staying on that path is tough. And then that you can prolong his days. <clears throat> That's a tough passage for me. Because you always, it is a promise that their days will be longer if they obey God's word. And yet in God's word, we see that in the Chronicles and the Kings, there are some kings that have this long of a term and others that have this long of a term. And it's hard to kind of map that out according to their holiness. So that's a difficult passage, right? Um, but it is, one of those, it, it is one of those spots in the Bible that promises a longer rulership or leadership if you pursue God's word and observe it. So... I'll take that one on faith that that actually happens. Um, going on to Deuteronomy 18. Oh, good. This is the one I started to call some of the people in the group about because I had some questions on this chapter. Uh, we move now to the portion for the priests and Levites. We're going off the kingship and we're going to go on to this Levite piece. The priests, the Levites, all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his portion. Therefore, they shall have no inheritance among their brothers. 
the Lord is their inheritance as he has said to them. So when it says, as he has said to them, we're talking about Numbers 18. Actually, there's a number of spots we've hit where God says the Levites are going to be the priests in the nation and every one of the other 11 tribes gets a portion of land that's their inheritance. Levites don't get land. They have no place in this world. They have no place to lay their head. All they get is to live off of the tithes and offerings of God's people. And that's what is going to be their income. So God takes one tribe because at the Passover, when he got them out of Egypt, the payback was, remember they put the blood over their door frames? All of the firstborn children died in Egypt that night if they weren't covered by the blood of the lamb. So it was the same principle that God basically said, I want your first fruits. I want the first son that you give birth to is going to serve and minister in my, in my temple. And instead of trying to figure that out across an entire nation, he just said, I'm going to make it really simple. I'm just going to take the Levites, which was pretty generous because then all the other 11 tribes didn't have to give up their firstborn, but they still could because they could do a devotion or, or devote their child to the Lord if they wanted to. So God makes it really easy. There's 48 cities that these people live in that are scattered through all of Israel. So they're meant to serve every city, every township. There's going to be some Levites there taking care of things. They get six cities of refuge. We've already read about that. And then, of course, there's this mention of the place, which keeps coming up. So there'll be 48 cities, six refuges, and one place that they're going to take care of and manage and, and minister in. The entire book of Leviticus covers the offerings that the first few verses mention. Numbers 18 talks about some of those offerings. Verse 2 then is causal. Because of this gift, they get nothing in this world. So God has made a switch or a change. It's kind of a tough thing because is that a good thing for the Levites or a bad thing? Like is this a, it's, you've won the grand prize, you're going to get nothing. In fact, I'll take away everything you may have already thought you had. And your gift and your inheritance is you get nothing. Um, but for God, essentially, spiritually, they get everything because they get to be the ones that are close to God and have that communication with God and they get to mediate for the people. So spiritually, they get everything, but for this world, they get nothing. So right after that piece on Kings where he's telling the Kings where to focus, God wants to set up this kind of place. Likewise, Jesus had no inheritance in this world either. He kind of gave it up. Matthew 8, 20. Foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, which is perfect. He's not even a Levite, right? He was from the tribe of Judah, but he has no place to lay his head because he's committed himself to the Lord, and that isn't going to be his priority as to where he lives and what he does. 1 Peter 1.3, a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter makes the argument that when we become Christians, we give up whatever we have in this world and we get the inheritance of heaven incorruptible as the replacement. That's kind of amazing. So if you think the trade-off for the Levites is a bummer, then it's hard to make that transition into Christianity, right? Because you give up everything in this world and you get everything in the next world. That's the trade. And you then live for those things and you do it accordingly. So the disciples, it's part of one of the nice parts about the epistles. It's the disciples working all this out after they realized Jesus was the Messiah and he rose from the dead. And they had to make sense of all that. So the letters in the New Testament, the, everything kind of after Romans, is that narrative between these disciples trying to explain some of these principles to each other. But the principle's rooted right here. 
Levites don't get an inheritance. They get God. That's their inheritance. It's a causal relationship. Um, so even then, God's people don't make this world their home. They take what God's kind of provided for them. Verse 3, And this shall be the priest's due from the people. For those who offer a sacrifice, whether it's bull or sheep, they shall give the priest their shoulder, the cheeks, and the stomach. Everything from the shoulders up. And the stomach they didn't eat, they made like wineskins out of it and things like that. So the first fruits of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the first fleece of your sheep, you shall give to them. So they get food, clothing, and they get kind of some leathers to make materials out of and, and products. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons, and then here's the catchword, forever. So there's an idea that this priesthood that God's establishing really goes beyond the Mosaic period and even goes beyond the Christian period of this Middle Age, that there will be a reestablishing of this priesthood because God says it goes on forever. The obligation is to care for the priests they get specific parts, and then other parts get shared and eaten amongst the people. Um, the shearing of sheep would have to do with clothes, because you take that wool, make it into clothes. This implies that even though the Levites got that first shearing, they actually had work to do to turn it into fabric. So the Levites were not expected to just live large on the products that they were given. They actually had to do work, and they were told to do that work, and probably the young Levites got to sit and do some of that manual labor in those pieces. When we looked at the last couple chapters, the people were able to pick their judges. They came from amongst the people, and, and the people were able to pick who would judge over them. The king God reserved for his choice, and the Levites God has already said he's already chosen the Levites as his, as his portion. So for the these two pieces, God's going to pick and, and make those decisions. Lots of people want authority, but God doesn't pick everybody for authority. And that's okay. And I just thought that was kind of a, an interesting idea. Toby Mack kind of says it best. We have a church full of leaders when what we need are more followers. And it's kind of, okay, if you don't know what Toby Mack is, it's a, a weak pop culture reference, I suppose. But it's that idea that God's going to choose who these people are, and then he's going to put a lot of them to work. And some of the work that they have to do is fairly menial, um, but that's going to be what honors God is that they do that work with a joyful heart, and they choose to be that way. The uh, specifics for this, I'm not going to get too far into it. Um, the entire book of Leviticus explains the sacrificial system, the tithing system, what goes to the priests, how it all works. So you can go back and, and listen to that or go back and restudy Leviticus. Verse 6, here the focus is on how they get picked and what their provision is going to be and how they're going to survive as a civic branch of government. So if a Levite comes from any of your gates, from where he dwells amongst all Israel, and comes with all the desire of his mind to the place where the Lord chooses, then he may serve in the name of the Lord his God as all his brethren and the Levites do who stand there before the Lord. They shall have equal portions to eat besides what comes from the sale of his inheritance. So people can kind of come and choose to give their lives to the Lord and become part of the, the, the process of ministering as a priest. The place is going to be, of course, Jerusalem as we get, get there. It's not an inheritance. It's actually a different world. So in verse 8, where it says the word inheritance, I would kind of cross that out and put in the word patrimony. It is something that is given to them by their father, but it is not a proper inheritance. So it's not even the same word we saw a few verses ago. 
So I don't know why in the English they translate that as the same word. It's just not the same Hebrew word because the Leviticus don't get an inheritance. So in verse 8, um, they don't have anything to sell because they never had an inheritance. But they might have had something that their father had when they become priests and they can sell that and give that back to the ministry. But it's not an inheritance. It's something that came from their father, a patrimony, if that makes sense. It's splicing hairs, but you never know. We want to understand what the word means and what it says. Then we get to verse 9. You have a so in context, before we get into witchcraft and soothsayers and all the you know weird stuff, in context, we're talking about God's giving his people an entire Levitical priesthood. And if those people are ministering to their needs, there should be no need for soothsayers and witchcraft and all the other weird stuff. There shouldn't be, because they get priests. So if they have a priesthood, they shouldn't have to turn to these other folks, right? So in, keep that in mind. Verse 9, when you come into the land which the Lord God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. We do have a disposition to study macabre and weird things, which I found in my own heart as I researched the next few verses. We even think sometimes it's fun to celebrate some of the weird and macabre things in our world. And I don't want to go down that path, but I do want to clearly understand what the word is, God is talking about here. Um, the abominations of those nations uh, are going to be found among you, verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. This is a reference to Moloch and child sacrifices. We've talked about that before. Um, you shouldn't have that in Israel. So it's interesting, and I'll get into this a little bit. We can talk about it later if you want. Since 1973, just so you don't just pass this off to the the Canaanites and how evil they were, passing kids through the fire or child sacrifice for your own convenience, getting rid of a kid because you don't want a kid is what Moloch would do. Since 1973, when we passed Roe v. Wade, there's been 60 million infants killed in the United States of America. 60 million kids have been killed because they largely, the overwhelming majority of them, the reason was inconvenience or because someone felt like they couldn't take care of that kid. That's a, one of those things that's going on in our country. Or, verse 10, one who practices or uses witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or anyone who calls up the dead. So in case you could invent more weirdness, Moses gives a pretty complete list here of all the different kind of weird things we do. I'm going to say that that list you just saw is all people who use things. So I, they're what I would call users. So to pass through the fire, you're using babies for your religious purposes. Bad, don't do that. Um, witchcraft is the Hebrew word kashem. And the craft in there is probably one of the best ways to interpret that. It implies that they're making things or crafting things that have spiritual power or energy, like a little globe that tells the future or things like that. So... Remember, a Kashem was what Balaam was in Numbers 22. He was a paid diviner, so he got paid money to divine the future for kings. Um, <clears throat> so they're using craft or items or little trips, tricks from their bag in order to impress you with all their magic tricks. So they have a top hat and a little cane, um, and they have objects that they use, and the power is in the object, not the person. Then you get to soothsayers. That's Anon in the Hebrew. Um, soothsayers use weather, 
or literally means to gather clouds. In Genesis 9:14, after the flood, God gathers clouds, and he's a soothsayer when he does it. He's Anon. He gathers the clouds, and, he's, and, and they use weather or predictive things or astrology, the stars, in order to predict the future. So the power is in the stars or the powers in the weather that they're predicting, right? Nakash, those that interpret omens, um, use signs and patterns. These are the people that get their toast that looks like Jesus and it's a sign and they, the power is in the sign that's just happened. Or they throw bones or they throw things in the ground or they do tea leaves and they read signs and patterns in the tea leaves. That's using things to do it. Literally, the word nakash means a hisser or someone who goes, they're just hissing stuff out. Um, So that makes you feel a little creepy. It does for me. Kashaf, the sorcerer, um, (laughs) is someone who verbally casts spells. In Exodus 7, Pharaoh's court magicians were called sorcerers. They would say things and the power was in what they said but it wasn't them that had the power because usually with sorcerers in the pagan times or in the ancient world, they used drugs in order to say things and the things that they said were coming from the drugs. So sorcerers use drugs. Interpreting omens uses signs and patterns. The soothsayers use the weather and the stars and the witchcraft people use items and objects. If there's any other category of users, it's hard to come up with it. This is a pretty complete list of anyone who sees power in anything that's not God like spiritual power and energy, right? So there's no indication biblically that these people are fakes. I think we should note that. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates these people don't have power or that they're not hearing from some spiritual sources. That is just makes me want to binge watch YouTube. Like there is weirdness here and we as humans get fascinated by the weirdness. And it's creepy because we can't explain some of these things. Sometimes when they make predictions, they're right. And it's like, whoa, how did you figure that out? I get that all the time with fortune cookies. So, though it's a corruption of the holy, because God can predict the future. God knows the future. And the enemy and spiritual forces would love to imitate God and have humans treat them like they're God and that they have more power than they really do. Because the first sin of Satan is presumption. He believes he's bigger than he should be. So they love this. Then we get to another list of those who actually believe they have power. So these are people that are so convinced by the spirit world that they are special, that they've come to believe that as a human being, they have spiritual energy and power. So they're not users. They're those who share their house, their body with other spirits or beings. This is even creepier. So one who conjures spells is actually a charmer of charms or chabar chabar. (laughs) Someone who unites or binds together in the Hebrew or has fellowship with a spiritual being outside of themselves. Now, this is a weird corruption, but it's not that weird because in the Christian world, we believe that when we ask Jesus to come into our heart, we're inviting a Holy Spirit to live in us and act through us and actually talk through us. But God doesn't overwhelm his people. It's a partnership and a fellowship that's holy and beautiful and good and sweet. And it actually makes us have peace and joy and love in our hearts. With these folks, that is not the fruit of what happens when they share their house with the Spirit. What tends to happen is that they're destroyed. They're depressed. 
they're anxious, they're bound in chains. This side of the spiritual world does not bear fruit of goodness. It bears the fruit of evil. So you have mediums that ask spirits to talk through objects. So in the Hebrew, a sha'al obey, a medium or someone who talks to spirits, it literally means to talk from a water bottle because they would use like a conch shell and like, you know, but they'd use old water bottles and it would go, and they would think those voices are spirits talking to them. Yidihon or spiritists are people that know a particular spirit or they have a familiar that they talk to again and again and again. A lot of times these people, even today, will name that spirit. My spirit friend is Gus and Gus talks to me on a regular, when I have questions in the spirit world, I just talk to Gus and Gus tells me everything I need to know. Darash or Muth is people who talk to dead people. So they don't just have Gus that they talk to, they talk to anyone that's dead and their spirits flying around in the nether, which is totally unbiblical, right? This is all an abomination of what's happening. Today we would call these people necromancers or people who talk or, or imply that they know how to talk to dead people. This got to be really popular in the 1800s. The spiritist movement in the United States became a big deal and it went side by side with the rays of the way in which science was now infecting inventions around America. So when we saw the industrial era happen, right alongside it went the spiritist movement. And today that movement is thriving in America. All of this is not okay with God. When men tell you to consult with mediums or spiritists who whisper or mutter, should not people inquire of their God, Isaiah 8, 19? The whole point is, if God's your Lord and King, you don't need these people. They're powerless. They're a shadow of the power that God has. They supplant a true conversation with God. Because if we're going to talk to a spirit, we call it prayer. And we just talk to the good God Almighty. We don't need to talk to any lesser spirits. Because God's opened a channel for us to talk to the real deal. What an abomination. What an adulterous act. If instead of being married to our king, we marry and share our houses with other spirits. It's absolutely an abomination. Okay, I'm setting this all up. Now I want to give some current events. In case you want to just dismiss this to, you know, 3,500 years ago, this was a big problem. It's a big problem today. We just don't see it because we hang out with ourselves on Sunday night. Newsweek, 2018. The rise in witches becomes a, an interesting phenomena in America. Because in 1990, there were roughly 8,000 witches in America. As of 2018, there are now 1.5 five million people that profess to be witches in the United States of America. That's an interesting change, according to Newsweek. Actually, it means that witchcraft is a more populated religion in America today than Presbyterians. So if you want to put that in context a little bit. But they all go celebrate at night in the shadows. So we don't see them. They don't have buildings that they hang out in, right? So here's another one. April 9th, 2011, this is the Star Tribune, the Twin Cities metro area has one of the five highest concentrations of witchcraft in the country. Estimated 20,000 witches, by the way, this is 2011, so that growth has gone up, who meet in 236 different covens or groups. Started in 1963 at Carleton College in nearby Northfield, Minnesota. Here's the source of witchcraft in Minnesota. Carleton College made a rule that every kid at Carleton College had to go to a religious service outside their own denomination. So a bunch of smarmy college kids said, okay, we're going to meet as Druids. And they, they formed and legitimately put together the first Druidic movement in the Minnesota 
and they had an increasing number of people that went there because they didn't want to go to a church. So it became a shadow of a church and it grew out of those shadows. And it's grown today to where there's five other cities, San Francisco, Salem, New Orleans, New York, all basically on the coastal areas forming a giant star across our continent. Woo, good for witches, right? 41% of Americans actually believe psychics have real spiritual power. A stunning 42% believe that spiritual energy can possibly be located in a physical object. So that's interesting. We had a neighbor two doors down from us that had gems all over in her house because gems had power. And so she had a nice gem collection in her house. And Grant got hired to go feed her cat. And Grant was a little younger than he's like, I don't want to go into this person's house anymore. So guess who got to feed the cat? I got to feed the cat. So I prayed over every one of her gems and went through her house. She must have come home and been like, where's all my spiritual power? It was me. The cat still lived, but her gems died. U.S. Spiritist Federation in 1997 has global ties. This is another interesting thing, and I think I sh I, we should point this out. A lot of times what I think Christians have done is they've painted these people as really, really horrible. So I think it's in part a Christian tradition, tradition that what comes up in our mind when I say witch is a little green thing with a big wart on her nose with hair growing out her ears and a big pointy tall black hat because from a Christian perspective, there's something sick and corrupt about this stuff. It's just junk, right? But the reality is that's not how they show up in a society. They show up doing really good things and they come in the name of goodness and happiness. So one of the things the witchcraft community has done is that they've said, you folks think that witchcraft is all about black magic, but there's actually white magic too. So they just make stuff up because they want to come across as acceptable and okay. So the U.S. Spiritist Foundation, these are people that do the seances and stuff like that, most of which are shown to be a hoax, um, but some of which are like really freaky and weird. Um, they have, if you go to the website, they stand for justice, love, charity, and science. That's what they stand for. And anyone who believes in science is, is in line with their belief view and how they do things. Spiritism is a science which deals with the nature, origin, and destiny of spirits, as well as their relationship with the corporal world. That's from their founder, Alan Kardec. They even have their own books that they cite just like the Bible. Because why not imitate the Bible if you don't actually use the Bible, right? So for them, there is one God. They just call God it. And they have other names for God. They believe that faith and reason should go together. And they, re they believe, and this is again one of those little twistings, that we don't become reborn once, we're reborn every day we wake up in the morning. And so they take the truths of God's word and they tweak it a little bit and they become somebody that helps us understand things. The science, they, most of these groups have counseling services. Most of these groups are trying to get into schools to share their beliefs with kids. Most of these groups have outreach services that they do. They have ways in which they care for the poor and the needy. So you can do a lot of really good things in this world and be doing it as a total abomination to God. And I think we need to just be aware of that and tune into that. The real deal is what God's kind of painting. Okay, I'll get back to this. Verse 12 in our chapter. For all those who do, that was my geek out moment. That happens like every week. For those who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out before you. Notice on this, the people don't go and stone them and kill them. 
God will take care of these people. It's not our job to fight them. Even in the Old Testament, you see how God holds them back from that? We just got done with him saying, this is when you stone people. But here, God's going to drive them out before them. You shall be blameless before Lord your God, for these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. There will be no national class of magicians serving next to the king in the nation of Israel. That's unlike every nation on the planet when this is written. You shall be blameless. Stay away from it. It's not cute. It's not cool. It's not a party game. You stay away from this stuff. God promises to drive them out, and he will. It's amazingly dangerous stuff to play with. And again, the Bible treats this stuff as real. They're talking to spirits. We would call them demons. That's who they're talking to. Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. So I love in 15, God never says don't do something without giving a positive option. Instead of that, I'm going to give you a prophet. Like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Interestingly, the, if you look at the Hebrew, the first word in that sentence in verse 15 is actually a prophet. Singular. Singular as though the first in a long line. Continuative. And the Lord your God will raise up for you comes later in the sentence. According to all you desired, the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more lest I died. Remember, they asked for a mediator. They didn't want to be the ones hearing directly from God. So God provided them Moses to be an inter intermediary between them so they didn't have to face God Almighty. God says he's going to provide a prophet like Moses from their midst. A prophet is nobby. Um, it is act, actuated by a define afflatus. That was the definition in Genesius. The definition of that word, I'm going to read it again. Actuated by a divine afflatus. I don't know what that means, nor can I find the words for that. It's a very unique word, and the, the commentaries were not helpful on that. The closest I could get is that a prophet who is someone who's indwelled with God's spirit himself which is really similar to the stuff that God just said don't have anything to do with these false prophets. These people that are indwelled by other spirits have nothing to do with them. So people that speak with God's word directly, and we're going to see in the Old Testament whole books called you know, prophetic books because they're spoken by prophets. God will continue to reveal his plan to humans through these prophets. Um, There's a few qualities of this prophet that we get from these verses. And these aren't as directly messianic. Some of the passages we had are like messianic in a really cool way. Like you're like, whoa, that's nifty. This one's not, but it does give us some things. And when you take the whole Old Testament and take all these pieces and put them together, you get the book of Matthew. Pretty much every sentence is the fulfillment of a prophecy. But here's a couple of those that we get. One is that the prophet will be like Moses in that there will be, what made Moses Moses is that he was able to act on behalf of God before the Egyptians and miracles happened through him. So one of the things about this prophet is that there will be miracles. From your midst is different. This is not someone necessarily that will be picked by the people. It'll be somebody that comes as a common person that will come to the nation of Israel. He'll come out of the midst of the people. You shall hear them. This prophet will speak and people will listen to him. 
So in verse 16, they're at Mount Horeb and they wanted that mediator to talk for them for God and God keeps that promise. But then he says, even 1,500 years later, I'm going to bring you this prophet that's going to speak for me. And in the, in the mediating time, he provides a lot of little prophets that come there too. So there's a progression of prophetic voices that lead Israel as to the way they should go all the way up until Jesus that also fits these criteria. So they have all that they desired. You don't get, have to follow the spiritists or the crafters, the users or the house sharers. All you have is this Jesus who's going to actually act in the exact same way. Through Jesus, we have a Holy Spirit that indwells us and fills us and gives us the way that we should walk through the world. And we have the Word of God, an object, through which God has put spiritual energy or power from which we can learn from and, and guide our steps. So we actually have objects that have spiritual force and authority in our life, the Bible, and we actually have a Holy Spirit that comes and indwells us according to the New Testament. So God actually gives people what they desire but they have to desire something that God's crafted for them, not something we craft for ourselves. And the Lord said to me, this is Moses talking, verse 17, what they've spoken is good, and I will raise for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require of it. So verse 19 is one of those sentences where you're thinking, huh? It shall be that whoever, that can be anybody, will not hear my words. So God has already said he'll put his words in the mouth of the prophet, right? Which he speaks in my name and I will require of it, of him. It's almost like God conflates this final prophet with himself, and if you see that in the sentence, and so this is part of where we look at Jesus as actually being God. And this sentence makes sense if that's the case. It's a little confusing if it's not. So when the singular prophet shows up, they're supposed to be speaking God's word, acting in God's name, and that becomes one of the requirements of Messiah that even the Jewish people are still looking for today. It's why so many people were willing to set aside the Jewish law in order to see it fulfilled and follow Jesus Christ because they recognized he was the Messiah, the fulfillment of the law, and when he speaks, you're going to follow his words, and that's something that will be required of that person who hears it. When you hear Jesus, you're supposed to follow Jesus. Do you see that in verse 19? So this is part of what is interesting about the Jewish people is they spend the next 1,500 years looking for that prophet that fits these qualifications and a number of other qualifications. So even the prophets like Nehemiah and Jeremiah, I don't think they would have pretended that they were the prophet. They're just a someone who has God has spoken to and they need to say something to the king. But they're not necessarily those people. So they're looking for Messiah because Moses said to look for Messiah. And we get this kind of cool biblical narrative where you got a whole nation of people waiting for God to do something. And that's kind of cool because we're in the same boat. We're still waiting for Christ to return. And his eminent return will come quickly, according to his promises. And this is the record of John. I'm in John 1. This is the record of John. When the Jews sent the priests and Levites to, from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you that prophet? And he answered, No. So John the Baptist kind of fits this description of the prophet. One of the first things the, rab the rabbinical priesthood does is they send people out 
to inquire into the matter as they were instructed in the last chapter and see what the truth of the matter is so they could have two or three witnesses report back. And John the Baptist says, I do not bear witness to myself. I am not the prophet. Though he's speaking the words of God, he's just plagiarizing the textbook. And he knows he's not that person and he doesn't and he claims he's not. Therefore, that's, it was the Romans that killed John the Baptist, not the Jewish priests, because he didn't claim to be the prophet and be false. So that said, with John the Baptist, there's no miracles that we know of with John the Baptist. He just preached the word of God and baptized people. But Jesus called him the greatest prophet that there was. But he didn't do the miracles. And we just read that there should be miracles happening because the prophet will come like Moses did and Moses came with miracles. So they were convinced then that Jesus was this prophet. That's what the disciples, the Jewish disciples thought. Acts 3 quotes this directly. And then in Acts 7, I'm going to read that passage. They kind of said it again. Acts 7, verse 37. This is that Moses. This is that Moses which said of the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up of, unto you of, of your brothers like me. Him you shall hear. So in the book of Acts, they're quoting this chapter of Deuteronomy pointing at Jesus saying, he's come, we should listen to what he has to say. And it was Jesus setting this up 1,500 years ahead of time. This is the stuff that we base our faith on. We don't base our faith on some whimsy thing because we had a happy feeling at a musical session one night. We base our faith on the, the fact that God has orchestrated a perfect plan and carried it out. And this is what the first believers believed. They didn't believe some kind of emotional kind of happy day kind of thing. They recognized the truth of the scriptures because they had read them. And then that's what they pointed to, and at least in Acts 7, and basically the whole chapter of Acts 3, is they started pointing at Jesus saying, this is the prophet we were promised. This is the guy. Came with miracles, came from among us, fits all the qualifications. So holy people claim to talk with the voice of God. I'm claiming tonight to say what God is saying to us. So every time someone speaks in a religious context, this is dangerous territory because you're pretending that you're speaking for God. Or, and, I, and I always say I plagiarize the word of God because I don't pretend to speak for God. I'm just reading what he says and bringing clarity to what he says. So for me, this is teaching. This is not preaching. Does that make sense? Okay, so how do we know when someone's a prophet or the prophet or a false prophet? Luckily, Moses thought about this question. Verse 21. Oh, verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of the other gods, that prophet shall die. So we're going to take false prophets out of the mix. They will be killed, and they will be taken care of. This is, by the way, why Jesus was killed by the Jews. Because they wanted, they, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He waited three years into his ministry to make the claim. And when he made that claim and they didn't believe it, even though they didn't have two or three witnesses, they falsely accused him, they handed over more of the Romans, and they had him killed. They didn't do the killing, they handed it over to the Romans to do the killing, right? Which fits here. It doesn't say you shall kill them, it says that prophet shall die. And you say in your heart, verse 21, how do we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How do you know that I'm not speaking for God? Anybody in this room could say, I just heard from God today, and God told me to tell you X, Y, and Z. How do I know if you're telling me the truth or not? There's rules for that. Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, 
that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Doesn't say kill him. Says stop listening to the guy. Don't pay attention to what he or she says. Drop him. So this is interesting because if someone gets up on a podium at your church and says, I believe the word of God said this will happen and then it doesn't happen, that person should be done. They no longer get the stage. That's tough in the church because you got people that have a lot of charisma. They've been preaching for a long time. They overstep their bounds and I've seen it happen and you just go, woo, don't pretend like you're talking for God when you're not. So there was a, Steph went to a get-together where the speaker at the get-together said, well, I've been doing this kind of the whole night with this, the Lord's telling me this, the Lord's telling me that, the Lord's telling me this. That's interesting because the Lord told us everything in the Word of God. And I do believe the Lord can speak to our hearts, but it's another thing to be having that relationship between you and God and say, man, I feel like the Lord's just telling me to do this or that. It's a very intimate, personal, beautiful, precious relationship. But when I get on a stage and tell other people how to live and I'm conflating that, and presuming that God has told me what to tell other people, that's a huge step. And it does happen. In the New Testament, there's lots of passages where God gives Peter a word about somebody and a word of knowledge, word of understanding. Sometimes it doesn't even happen with our knowledge. Like you give an example as a teacher and that example perfectly fits somebody in the room because God's trying to talk to them. But the person at this conference, of course, was going on and on and on. And we joke because at the end of the night, she said, the Lord is telling me someone in this room is thinking of the color blue or something to that effect. So it's the color blue. So that's kind of how we talk about this right now. It's, oh, the color blue must be someone in this room. Or you can do these big general things like someone in this room is hurting tonight. Lord's telling me that. You walk in any room in America and somebody's hurting in the room. And that's like gypsy, gypsy fortune telling kind of stuff, right? And it's so presumptuous to do that kind of thing and it's dangerous and the Lord basically says you should no longer fear what that person has to say because the way we know a false prophet is if it doesn't happen oddly enough no one in the room came forward to talk about the color blue so if you're saying the Lord's telling me someone in this room wants to talk about something and then you look at the room and nobody responds Lord apparently didn't lie to you because the Lord doesn't lie it's not true you shouldn't be in that position anymore. You spoke presumptuously. It's dangerous to do that. So that said, if the Lord is telling you to do something, you just do it. But that's between you and God. And it's joyful and amazing. And usually that's how God guides us in our lives. But to do it as a prophet, that's a whole step. And again, we're contextually here, we're talking about national level stuff. And God's saying, I don't want you to have a bunch of soothsayers talking to your king. I don't want you to have a bunch of weird spiritists. Nancy Reagan should not be reading the stars when her husband's in office. It's not okay. It's just a step away from that kind of stuff, right? So that's something where God's saying that. And by the way, in America, when that happened, people went up in arms. Like, oh my goodness, we have somebody bringing in a, an astrologer into the White House? But the part of that history is that this was a nation of people that really held to some of these standards. So. I had some discussions too about this idea of like, what does this mean when you're talking about kind of this spiritual stuff and, and whatever? And well, does that mean we should not go to Disneyland because they have Harry Potter stuff there or Universal Studios, right? Or should kids read stories about these kinds of things? And frankly, I really wrestled with this because to what degree do we, are we running a national government 
and taking counsel from people. To what degree do we think there's real power going on here? And to what degree are we just enjoying a good movie, say, right? Or a story or a, a game. It's hard to play a computer game without some sort of secret power shooting out of your hand, right? So there's, there is a line there somewhere. And one thought is this. The conservative Christian approach is why mess with any of it? Like if it's dangerous and there's stuff out there that causes people to stumble, why goof around with any of that nonsense? Leave it alone. And then there's kind of people that are more in the moderate camp of Christianity saying, you know, reading a story, Harry Potter is a good example because he's popular. Harry Potter is a good mystery detective story with some fantasy elements in it. And that's not going to hurt you because you don't think there's real power there. Right? And that's kind of this kind of thing where what's in your heart and how do you deal with those things and you decide with it. We also have Christians that are progressive that are bringing some of that nonsense into the church. And they're saying, okay, we want to have these kind of weird spiritual housings that speak to people while this stuff's going on. And they're being really sloppy with how God works through humanity. And saying that there's power in some of these acts that are incredibly taken from the world of the spiritists and things like that, like labyrinths and things like that. So you have different schools of thought on this at various spectrums. Here's my encouragement tonight, because we have people from, I would say we have people from different camps on this topic tonight and different levels where that line is. And I would say this, if God convicts you about it, don't hesitate to get rid of it. It's just that simple. And I don't think God works on people at the same place on any different issues. I think people can come into the church as a broken believer with a billion different issues of sin in their life. God mercifully says, I want you to deal with this one first. Let's get these things out of your life first. And as you walk through your faith and throughout life, you get rid of more and more stuff because you fill it with the good stuff. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, you don't need magicians to entertain yourself. And the more you can fill yourself with the truth and the reality of the Holy Spirit, the less you're curious and interested about weird, freaky spirits over here. Even happy spirits like unicorns and literally unicorns and rainbows when we were a kid, right? With the Care Bears that had little spirit friends that walked around with them. Like that stuff just becomes less interesting because you realize it for what it is. It's a weak shadow of the real deal. And if I want to see real power in my life, turn to Jesus Christ, pray, which is talking to a spirit, and actually activate that power in your life. Not so that you can get the glory and have anything to boast about, Romans 3, but so that you can actually humble yourself to the power of God and how he can use you. We don't make the tools, we are the tools, right? We don't house spirits. We become overwhelmed and born again with a new spirit that God's given and created in us. That's so much more beautiful than anything that that world has to offer. So you should know those things. And when a prophet speaks presumptuously, we should recognize that, we should acknowledge it, and we should get the heck away from it. So it's far more concerning to me when this stuff happens on a stage in a church than when it happens on a TV screen that I can choose to turn off. And it's far more concerning to me when we start replacing the word of God with other things. So... If the thing does not happen, there's only two tests. A prophet, someone who claims to speak for God should be consistent with the word of God that's already spoken because God is utterly consistent with his own word. And they should never speak something that doesn't come to pass. And when it doesn't come to pass or in, it's in contradiction to God's word, we walk away from that stuff, right? And it's really easy to do that. There are examples in the Bible of Christians going up to brothers in the faith. Nathan came up to David and said, 
I have a story to tell you about a, a man who took someone's sheep, right? It's a great VeggieTales version of that. And Nathan was basically coming to David saying, look, the Lord's telling me that you got this sin that you did. And it's secret and nobody knows about it, but the Lord told me so you would know that God knows it. Well, that's pretty bold from Nathan because for Nathan to do that, he's not only risking his life by taking off a king, he's risking his life because if he's not right about what God told him, then that king is obligated under this law to kill him and to get rid of him. So it's a bold thing, but it does happen. So when God's telling you to do something, just do it without hesitation. He'll take care of you. Um, it's interesting that two or three witnesses have to show up. John clarifies this issue over and over and over again in the gospel, that Jesus was the prophet. Chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 8, verse 18, I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witnesses about me. Who bore witness of Jesus being God? Because how are you going to prove if he's God or not? Jesus says, I bear witness to myself and God bears witness. That's two witnesses. Because the only one who can witness an eternal God is an eternal God. And so it's interesting how John just, in the book of John, it's like John struggled with this question of identifying the prophet. So again and again and again, John keeps bringing up this issue of who witnessed to what and who spoke for what. And he got all of that out of this chapter of Deuteronomy. This is why he was so hung up on witnesses and how you identify these people. Last passage, and then I'll kind of be done on this prophet idea. God decides that prophecy today should simply be speaking God's word. We should be reading and teaching God's word to everybody we know. Then we can say, this is what God says, because we don't have to have experienced it. We can just read it in God's word and know that it's reliable. If God says it here, I know that God says it, and I can stand on that. And reading the word of God is better because we don't have to sit in self-doubt about it. If it says it, we can believe it. And the differences between chaff or wheat, or as Jeremiah says in chapter 23, verse 28, the prophet who has a dream, let him tell his dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the, what is the chaff to the wheat? And it's a really interesting idea. When we have the word of God, it's like we got the wheat. We don't need to go to weird spiritual forces or energies to understand what God's saying in our life. We just have the Bible. It's so much better than what they had at that point. The wisdom of the world just pales in comparison to the wisdom of the Word of God. It is something that elevates it. Like kings have to write it all out, right? It's really important to do that. And then God teaches them how to recognize something that's not there. Don't presume. Respect the Levites. Learn the Word of God. Copy it by hand if you're feeling ambitious. Stick to the Word of God. And then in chapter 18, you don't need false teachers. What you need is Jesus. There's a prophet coming and that's what you are waiting for. So it's just this wonderful kind of passage. Again, we're in the nitty-gritty stuff in Deuteronomy right now. There is more coming next week as we get into chapter 19. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and we need to learn how to wield something before we'll hurt ourselves. Lord, help us to never presume that we speak for you unless we see it consistent in the word of God, or Lord, you have made yourself undoubtedly speaking to us. Lord, we don't want to dabble with weird stuff. We don't want to pretend or be fake in anything we do. We want it to just be authentic and real. So Lord, help us to seek and pursue your truth and your glory and the wonder of your majesty in our lives and that nothing in this world even comes close to that. It's like the wheat and the chaff and what do they have to do with each other? Lord, help us to pursue your word even though the whole world is pursuing something else. Help us to stand out resolute. Lord, I pray for your faithful to rise, that you gather and assemble your holy church 
and that you help us to find one another, Lord, that you help us to connect and recognize what's a false teaching from what's true. And Lord, we know that false teachers are anybody that contradicts your word or says things that just aren't true. And Lord, we, I, I pray that we just have the will, no matter what our feelings might be about people that do that, that to just walk away. Lord, we don't need to protest them. We don't need to critique them. We don't need to troll them on the internet. We just need to walk away and give our life and our time and our energy over to you. Help us to submit to your word, Lord. And when we struggle with things, Lord, just give us the strength to, to change and adapt, to be more like uh, the people you want us to be. Uh, in Jesus' name, I pray at a blessing and an anointing on everyone in this room. May you give us the eyes to see and ears to hear where you're at work in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.